The Bible is not a book. You already knew this, probably. The Bible is a library, right? Did you know this? Okay, if you didn't know this, this is, this is, this is interesting stuff. The Bible is a library that includes all kinds of writings. Um, in this book, uh, there is poetry, uh, even love poetry. There are uh, prayers, songs. Uh, for those of you that love history, it's filled with history, uh, narrative. It's filled with, with prophecy and, yes, even letters, like Paul's letter to Corinth. You can see a picture of Corinth uh, on a map, I think. There it is. You can go visit Corinth today. Last week we talked all about the city of Corinth. And Paul, uh, just like, uh, I don't know when the last time, did have any of you written a letter lately? Any letter writers? Our teenagers don't even know what that is. You know that, right? Like they've never even seen a stamp. They have no clue what the post office does other than deliver their Amazon orders. You know, like they have no clue. But people used to write these things down and send them to other people. Paul uh, uh, spent uh, 18 months in the city of Corinth. You can go visit it today. Uh, it was a multi-ethnic city. Uh, it was the center of east-west trade. Uh, it had tons of uh, cultural influences and religious influences all being poured in, in a lot of ways, uh, partly because it was a sailor town, partly because the temple to Aphrodite, it was, uh, it was sin city. It was the worst city in the world at that time, right? And Paul goes, hey, this would be a great place to start a church, he even stays there 18 months. And over the next five years, Paul has a series of correspondence with the church he starts in Corinth. The letter we have, 1 Corinthians, is just one of those letters. Um, uh, we also have 2 Corinthians. You would think it's a continuation of 1 Corinthians, but it's not. It's really different. It talks about completely different kind of stuff. And so Paul is sending these letters, and we probably don't even have them all. Over a series of five years, he's corresponding back to a church about all kinds of stuff. Um, it's kind of like uh, if you wrote a letter to Murfreesboro, first Murfreesboro, second Murfreesboro, first Antioch, second Goodlitzville. You know, like it's just a series of correspondence and interactions um, and, and like with all letters, it gets pretty relational. I, I mean, Paul responds like a father who cares for his church. He reveals his own soul, especially in the second letter. Paul gets incredibly emotional. Like we, he reveals more of himself than we see in any other writing. So what we are looking at is a letter, and it requires a little bit different kind of eyes to read it. Um, because uh, Paul's letter doesn't always flow. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, maybe some of you ex experienced that as, as you're reading along. But probably what is happening, if you can imagine this in your head, I, I'm just going to, I'm going to paint a scenario. I'm not saying this is the only way it happened. But probably what happened is Paul received, has received some word, some correspondence from his church in Corinth, the church he planted in Corinth. And Paul wants to reply to them. So if you can imagine, Paul is holding, maybe holding a letter from the church at Corinth. And in this letter are all of the church's questions. Well, what do we do about the Lord's Supper? 
What do we do about eating food dedicated to idols? What about marriage? What about sex? What about all of these things? Like, so they have all of these questions, and Paul is holding this letter, looking at their list of questions. While he paces back and forth, he starts to answer these questions. And like all writings in essentially the New Testament, they were recorded by somebody else. Uh, he has a, a, a secretary as he's reading through the questions, he's replying. The secretary is like, they didn't have a keyboard, you know, like frantically trying to scribble this down. And Paul isn't like sitting down to a super like logical order. He's, he's just reading and responding. But as he spoke, he had his mind's eye. Now imagine this, like when you write a letter to someone, you probably have them in mind, right? You have their situation in mind. And Paul is doing that exact same thing. Like, he knows the people of this church. He knows where they're meeting and what they're dealing with. He, so in his mind, eye, he has the specific people and their problems. Uh, it, he knows what he's talking about. So uh, I'm going to kind of reveal a bunch, and then we're going we're gonna to come back and dissect it. Because truly, it's, some of this is kind of difficult. Why is Paul writing? To the church in Corinth. You know, he's received maybe something from them. They've got questions. They've got problems. Uh, this is the easiest explanation of what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians. It's this image right here. It's this image. There it is. How many of you know this? How many of you have played this game before? First off, like, what's crazy is, like, in our PC world, like, this game is probably not even appropriate anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, it's called what? What's the name of it? Operation. That's right. Uh, I don't think there's an app for it. You know, like you actually like, um, it involves electricity. It's kind of fun, you know, like you, you get this tiny little pair of, of tweezers and you get to dig into the naked man. Like I said, not appropriate in our world today. And, and pull stuff out, right? Um, that is exactly what Paul is doing in 1 Corinthians. It is a careful dissection. So there are, very, there are lots of things that this church in Corinth is facing. Remember, a church planted in the middle of Sin City, they're having issues with unity and divisions and sex and food and the gathering and gifts and resurrection and the, who's at real authority and marriage and divorce and idols and the Lord's Supper. And the issue with the church at Corinth was that it was infected with the problems of the city it was in, right? The church at Corinth looks a lot more like the city of Corinth than God's holy people in the city of Corinth. Are you with me? Uh, I, I tongue-in-cheek have said this from the beginning Thank goodness our churches today aren't infected by the culture that surrounds them. Some of you are following. Well, of course we're infected by the culture, right? And the same thing is happening at, at Corinth. And Paul, in this letter, has to perform a careful surgery to remove the cultural infestation and instead plant the gospel. Let's take a look together. Here are the first few verses. This letter is from Paul. 
chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and from our brother Sosthenes, uh, you can read about him in Acts 18, I am writing to God's church in Corinth. Whose church is it? God's church. This is an important distinction. It's not their church. It's God's church in Corinth. I'm writing to God's church in Corinth to you who have been called by God to be his holy people. He made you holy by means of Jesus Christ, just as he did for all people everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. You have been called by God. Like this is line two of his letter. You've been called by God to be his holy people. The word in Greek is hagios. Sometimes it's translated saints. You have been called by God to be saints. Remember, this is sin city, right? Paul begins by doing this incredible thing. It's, it's the role every parent, uh, it, it's the role for every parent. It's, it's maybe our most important role as a parent. And maybe your most important role as a parent is to remind your children who they really are. Right? Your children, everybody's back to school. Woo! Um, in your, your child's school, maybe some of your children are going to college right now. They are going to be inundated with messages that try to tell them who they are, to try to tell them what their real value is. You know what I'm talking about? Everything outside has this opinion of your child. And the most painful thing in the world is when a parent sees their child start to believe what somebody else has told them, right? And so your job as a parent is to remind them who they really are. You don't lie and cuss and still. You don't sleep around because you're a cough hold, right? Because that's not who we are, right? That's not who you represent anymore. And Paul does this incredible thing. I mean, from verse 2, you're, you're right in it. He is reminding them of their identity. You are hagios, you are saints. You are different. You are the special possession of God dedicated to his service. Now show yourselves fit for that service. This is important that he doesn't tell them to withdraw from the world, but to live out their identity in it, their true self. Because a saint is someone in whom Christ lives again. Are you with me? It's a pretty cool verse too. So how do we do this? How do we live out this new identity that we have? Okay, now once we belong here, but now we have this new stuff inside of us. How do we live this out? And Paul's going to like do this careful dissection all through his letter. And he's going to start by going after wisdom. If you've read the first couple of chapters, he talks about wisdom a bunch. Wisdom and knowledge show up again and again and again. He even kind of praises the Corinthian church for their, their wisdom and their intellect and their, their clever speech, which is kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of, hey, I'm coming for you, you better watch out. 
Athens, like Corinth, was the center of an intellectualism, right? You have the idea of those guys like Toga Party sitting around talking about wise things. Do any of you have that friend that, that knows everything about everything? Don't point at them if they're here today. You know what I'm saying? Like, we've all got that friend that has everything figured out. I know what you need to do. You know, like, like that's how I think of Greece, and uh, that's how I, I think of, of Corinth a little bit, too. You know, Corinth is this, this, this center of trade. It's the center of the world, and so they kind of have this attitude that, that because they're multi-ethnic and they're this advanced society, that they, they probably look down on all these other podunk towns because we've got it all figured out, right? So Paul's going to target wisdom from the very beginning. You know, they probably love to debate. The Greeks love to debate. They love to do mental acrobatics. They were sure that they could, they could intellectualize it. They were sure that they could process it and, and, you know, it could come in and they could chew it up and then they could spit it back out. But listen to what Paul says in, in chapter 1. Look what he says in verse 19. He starts by quoting scripture about God. He said, as the scriptures say, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and discard the intelligence of the intelligent." So where does that leave the philosophers, the scholars, and the world's brilliant debaters? Look what he says. God has made the wisdom of this world look foolish. Keep going. Go to that next slide. He goes on a little bit further. He says, God chose the things the world considers foolish in order to shame those who think they are wise. And he chose things that are powerless to shame those who, who think they're powerful. And God chose things despised by the world, things counted as nothing at all, and used them to bring to nothing what the world considers important. All right, so this is really important, amazing kind of language, right? He's comparing and contrast. He says there's a kind of wisdom that comes from the world, and there's a kind of wisdom that comes from God. And the wisdom that you, Corinth, think that you have is really no wisdom at all, right? In fact, it's compared to God, it's foolishness. I love what uh, John Chrysostom said this about the Greeks and their love of intellectualism and mental acrobatics. He said, they croak like frogs in a marsh. They are the most wretched of men because though ignorant, they think themselves wise. Do you see that? And God says, I, I, Paul says, look, I, I know everything in Corinth is claiming to have it figured out. But real wisdom comes from God. Look what he says in verse um, 30 and 31. He says, God has united you with Christ Jesus for our benefit God made Christ Jesus to be what? Christ is wisdom. And Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy and he freed us from sin. Therefore, as the scriptures say, if you want to boast about being wise, if you have some boast about your intellect or your power to figure stuff out, he says really the only boast you have is in Jesus Christ. 
Real wisdom comes from the Spirit of God, which we receive when we, re- when we unite ourselves with Christ Jesus. All right, so let's, let's dig into this a little bit deeper. I know you're, I'm requiring some brain power here. Thank you for participating today. There is wisdom of the world and wisdom of God, right? And the wisdom of God, the world thinks is foolish. And the wisdom of, of the world, God thinks is foolish. So how does this look? How does this play out? Like, like um, how do we understand this? And like, how come the world can't understand things of God? And how come God thinks the world's wisdom is foolish? Like, do you see this contrast? Like, here's what I think. I think this contrast exists as much today as it did back then. Let me give you some examples from Jesus' own teaching, right? And we're going to compare it. Is this wisdom of the world or is this wisdom of God? Is this foolishness and to who? All right. Jesus' own teaching says, turn the other cheek. To the world, what is that? Is that wisdom? Of course not. Who in our culture thinks that's a great idea? Right? Where are we going that we're going to hear, turn the other cheek is really the way to go here? What about love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you? Is that worldly wisdom? Not to the world, that's foolishness. To the world, that's, you take revenge on your enemies and pray for their ruination, right? That's not wisdom. Or, or love as the highest good. Jesus tells this story about a son who, <laughs> with like the most ungrateful son ever, who takes all of his dad's money and goes and blows it, right? Absolutely blows it. I mean, blows it like nobody, I mean, he probably went to Corinth. You know, like he blows it like nobody's ever blown it. And then the son comes back to the father. And the world, the world wisdom says that the son deserves what? Punishment. The world wisdom says that you blew it. You had your chance. You should be outcast. But the wisdom of God says, let's throw him a party. Right? Like, do you see how these things don't line up together? And it goes on and on and on. The wisdom of God says it's more blessed to give than receive. Where in our world do you hear that teaching? It doesn't happen. The wisdom of God says real life is found not in the accumulation of things, but in the distribution of your wealth. That's pretty popular in our world, right? Jesus tells this story about a shepherd. Uh, So a shepherd's job is to take care of the sheep, right? And a shepherd, uh, in Jesus' story, leaves the 99 sheep to go after one. In the world, that shepherd would be fired, right? Because that's bad shepherding, right? You would never sacrifice the 99 for the one. And yet God says, man, this is right at my heart of who I am. It's 
it's bad math to leave the 99 for the one. The wisdom of God says, this, is, this one's special for you. See if you understand this one. The first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Go ahead and give me your analyzation of what that means. Any of you who wants to be great must be a servant. Okay, where do we see that in our world today? Right? Like to the world, that idea is foolish. The great don't serve the weak. That's not how it works. Or what about this one? Anyone who wants to save his life must lose it. This sounds like a bad plan. Right? The world is never going to understand. The people of Corinth are never going to get that. Right? And he did, it digs even deeper. How can a virgin give birth? How can God become a man? How can a baby threaten a king? How can a Messiah, the Savior, die? Paul even pulls this one out specifically. How can you win by dying? Look what it says in verse 18. I think maybe I have that. Paul says, the message of the cross is foolish. He says, the cross is foolish to those who are headed for destruction. It's foolish to the world. What do you mean your Savior died? How does that work? But we who are being saved know it is the very power of God. In this church in Corinth, they're infested with wisdom, but where did it come from? Is it wisdom that came from God, or is it wisdom that came from somewhere else? One of the things that showed up in our leadership team meetings lately is that part of what we have recognized about Jesus and his teaching and the way of following Jesus is you have to try it first. Like, it actually, like, obedience and discipline are first. It is not reason it out, figure it out, work through the pros and cons, and then stick your toe in and try it. That's not how it works. You actually have to do the wisdom of God first. Like you have to have the obedience and the discipline to do it first, and only then, only after stepping into the wisdom of God do you go, oh, this kind of works. Have you ever had that experience? I don't know how this works. I don't fully understand how this works, but I'm going to do it anyway, only to do it and go. I love, I love when this realization hits for new Christians. I love when it happens. What do you mean marriage, or, or I'll put it this way, what do you mean sex is just for me and my spouse? How does that work? Do you hear the, the, the competing and contrasting wisdoms here, right? What do you mean I shouldn't just pursue my own personal gratification in every aspect of my life? It's all about me, right? But when you try it, and you put on the wisdom of God, you have these moments of realization of like, oh, wow. It's, it's difficult, but it's good, and it's true. 
Let's read a little bit more. A long section of scripture from chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. Paul says, yet when I am among mature believers, I do speak with words of wisdom, but not the kind of wisdom that belongs to the world or to the rulers of this world who are soon forgotten. No, the wisdom we speak of is the mysterion of God, his plan that was previously hidden, even though he made it for our ultimate glory before the world began. But the rulers of this world have not understood it. If they had... It's pretty obvious. If they had gotten it, they'd have never crucified Jesus. Keep going. But it was to us that God revealed these things by his spirit. For his spirit searches out everything and shows us God's deep mysterion. No one can know a person's thought except that person's own spirit. And no one can know God's thoughts except God's own spirit. And listen to this. And we have it. And we have received God's spirit, not the spirit of the world. So we can know the wonderful things that God has freely given us. Keep going. When we tell you these things, we do not use words that come from human wisdom. Instead, we speak words given to us by the spirit, using the spirit's words to explain spirit truths. Did you get that part? Spirit explains spirit words and spirit truths. But people who aren't spiritual can't receive these truths from God's spirit. It all sounds foolish to them, and they can't understand it. For only those who are spiritual can learn and understand what the spirit means. Those who are spiritual can evaluate all things, but they themselves can't be evaluated by this group over here. For who can know the Lord's thoughts, and who knows enough to teach him? But we understand these things, for we have the, what are those last three words? Mind of Christ. What a powerful section of scripture. This is worth some of your meditation time this week, right? Just these few verses, sit on them, sit on them and, and chew on them and, and process them. It says, we understand these things, for we have the mind of Christ. The Spirit reveals spiritual thoughts. It reveals spiritual truths. Have any of you ever received a, a, a Spirit-filled revelation from God before? I'm a preacher. I speak from a, a truth and wisdom that I recognize is not my own all the time. Have you ever had that moment? where uh, it's a moment, a flash of wisdom, a flash of truth, uh, a flash of, of some wonder that comes out of your mouth and you go, man, I don't even know where that came from. I'm definitely not smart enough to say that. <sighs> that happens a lot. That's the mind of Christ, right? But for people of the world, it's like a different language. You know, they don't, they don't get it because they, don't, they just don't speak the language of God. It's, it's not that they can't receive that spirit. It's not that they can't learn it. They just have chosen not to. And so literally, it's, it's, it's a different language to them. It's gibberish. But to those who have... They have a new mind, right? Like, like this, is, this is a whole new thing. 
they begin to see and think about and process the world through a whole different kind of lens. Are you with me? You know what I'm talking about. They have the mind of Christ. So in just a moment, I'm going to send you to a time of communion. We've got the the table set up around the room, and uh, uh, it's sacred space for us for you to reflect and respond. And 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 even if if God's put it on your heart to respond in some way, I'll I'll be available to receive you. Let me kind of wrap these thoughts up. Let me let me attempt to wrap some of this up. We we've, we've been in deep waters today, so thank you guys for sticking with me. Let me try to wrap some of this up. I told you that. Uh, in the introduction of Paul's letter, he uses, he uses the template of every letter we have from that time period. Literally, like the time of Paul's writing, there was a template for writing letters. And Paul follows that template almost perfectly. But there's one thing that Paul does in his letter that was outside the norm, that was outside of the template. There's one exception that he makes, and you can look it up for yourself. In the first 10 verses of Paul's letter, Paul invokes the name of Jesus Christ no fewer than 10 times. So he takes the form and the standard of this world and 10 times in 10 verses calls on the name of Jesus. Where do you think his mind is? What do you think is occupying his thoughts? And then he says this in verse 4. It's an idea he's going to come back to again and again and again. He says, I always thank my God for you and for the gracious gifts he's given you. Now that you belong to Christ Jesus The church at Corinth is lining up with questions. It's been fully infested with every idea and intellectual uh, wave that comes through the city of Corinth. It all crashes on the shores of this church in Corinth, right? Ideas about sex and marriage and food and dating. I mean, everything, like everything comes and washes up to the door of the church in Corinth. And Paul is sit here to try to respond to all of these different concerns. And Paul almost exclusively replies to every single concern with the same idea. Well, you belong to Christ now. Well, what do we do about food offers to idols? Well, you belong to Christ now. What do we do about marriage? Well, you belong to Christ now. What do we do about the Lord's Supper? Well, you belong to Christ now. What do we do about all the multicultural issues that are facing our church? Well, you belong to Christ now. Do you see that? In every issue they face, Paul says the answer is understanding who you belong to. Paul says you've got a whole new mind now. To see and understand. Let me th- throw this picture back up for you again. This is your job and our job. Really. Because 
like the people in the church at Corinth, we are not immune to the influences of our world. In fact, sometimes they creep in without us even knowing. And the challenge of of Paul's letter to Corinth is, is our challenge too. The challenge is to examine your own heart because my guess is that there's something that has creeped in. Some operation needs to happen. What worldly wisdom have you given yourself to that needs to be drawn out so that you can again have the mind of Christ? May you remember who you are. You do not have a spirit of this world, but the spirit of the living God, (laughs) his heart beats in you. Remember, a saint is someone in whom Christ lives again. And you belong to him. I'm going to say a prayer for us and dismiss us to a time of communion. If God's placed it on your heart to respond this morning, maybe maybe, uh, you need some careful dissection to happen. If that's you, man, I'd love to receive you and pray for you. The heart of this church is to serve and to bless. But as you take these elements of Christ's death and resurrection, may you do some dissection. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word, for its power, for its truth. God, it says, uh, you say of your word that it's sharper than a two-edged sword, able to separate bone from marrow. And God, may that happen here today. And, And I'm not immune from it, and none of us are immune to it. Father, too often we've had the mind of the world and not and not the mind of your son, Jesus. And so, Father God, where we're out of alignment, where we've been infected, God, may you do a careful surgery in us. Because we know the ways of the world lead to death, but you, Father God, you, your ways, even though the world doesn't understand them, your ways lead to life. And so, Father God, may we find that in you today. May we be reminded of who we belong to. May we be every person, every student, every, every mom and dad be reminded in this place that they belong to you and can find themselves, their, their true self, their identity in you. We love you, Father. And in your son Jesus' name, everyone together says,